editors of the University of Pennsylvania Law Review. Don't cry over filled milk. He neglected footnote three to Caroline Products. The University of Pennsylvania Law Review, Volume One Thirty Six, Page Fifteen Fifty Three, Nineteen Eighty Eight. Membership in the law review is an invaluable learning experience, both in substantive law and in the skills of research, analysis, and expression. Recognition of the value of this experience by the legal profession generally makes membership on the law review a goal for most students. The famous footnote four to United States versus Caroline Products Company has generated. Significant and plentiful scholarly discussion. The equally important footnote three in Justice Stone's opinion, however, has not impact, attracted as much attention from the academic community. This is an unfortunate oversight. Footnote three illustrates, in microcosm, many of the issues on the forefront of modern legal debate. It provides a starting point for an examination of the importance. Of footnotes in general to the world in which we live, for a study of the vital importance of daily jurisprudence, the general field of bovine law, and by extension to American law, and for speculation that cozy assumptions as to the legal system's human origins may be sadly mistaken. Part one of this aside describes footnote three's contribution to the development of citation overkill in American law and the impending triumph of form over vulgar functionalism. Part two does not exist. Part three discusses footnote three's importance on legal interpretation, as exemplified in law of daily products and the barnyard animals in general. Part four examines footnote three's origins. Concludes that it was drafted by authorities hitherto ignored by respectable legal scholars. Part one, toward the theory of deontological citational dialecticism, footnote three, and deconstructive footnote teleology. A. Citation, the sincerest form of flattery. Footnote three is divided into two parts. The first paragraph. Contains a discrete and independent branch of the footnotes constitutional theory. It reads, "There is now an extensive literature indicating wide recognition by scientists and dietitians of the great importance to public health of butter fat and whole milk as the prime source of vitamins, which are essential growth producing and disease preventing elements in the diet." See Dr. Henry C. Sherman. The meaning of vitamin A in Science, December twenty first, nineteen twenty eight, page six nineteen. Dr. E. V. McCollum et al. The newer knowledge of nutrition, nineteen twenty nine edition, pages one thirty four, one seventy, one seventy six, one seventy seven. Dr. A. S. Root, Food Vitamins, North Carolina State Board of Health, May nineteen thirty one, page two. Dr. Henry C. Sherman, Chemistry of Food and Nutrition, nineteen thirty two, page six thirty. Three sixty-seven, Dr. Mary S. Rose, Foundations of Nutrition, nineteen thirty-three, page two thirty-seven. Thus, paragraph one is the source of the doctrine that scientists and dietitians recognize the importance of butter fat and whole milk to the public health.
it is important for its modest ratio of four lines of text to six lines of citations. Paragraph two, on the other hand, is the court's pinnacle citation overkill. When the Filled Milk Act was passed, 11 states had rigidly controlled the exploitation of filled milk or forbidden it altogether. House Resolution 365, 67th Congress, First Session. Some 35 states have now adopted laws in which, in terms, or by their operation, prohibit the sale of filled milk. The Alabama Agricultural Code, 1927, Section 51, Article 8. The Arizona Revenue Code, 1936 Supplement, Section 943Y. Pope's Arkansas, Arkansas Digest, 1937, Section 3103, Deering's California Code, 1933 Supplement, Title 149, Act 1943, Page 1302, Connecticut General Statutes, 1930, Section 2487, 135. Delaware Revenue Code, 1935, Section 649, Florida Compendium General Laws, 1927, Subsections 3216 and 7676. The Georgia Code, 1933, Sections 42 through 511. The Idaho Code, 1932, Title 36, Subsections 502 to 504. Jones, Illinois Statutes, Annals. 1937 Supplement, Sections 53.020123. Burns, Indiana Statutes, 1933, Sections 32 to 1203. The Iowa Code, 1935, Section 3062. The Kansas General Statutes, 1935-65, Section 607. The Maryland Annals of Code, Article 27, Section 281. The Massachusetts Annal of Code of Laws, 1933, Section 17-A-94, Michigan Compendium of Laws. 1929, Section 5358, Mason's Minnesota Statutes, 1927, Section 3926, Missouri Revenue Statutes, 1929, Subsections 12408 to 12413, Montana Revenue Code, Anderson McFarland, 1935, 240, Section 2620.39, Nebraska Compendium Statutes, 1929, Section 81 to 1022. New Hampshire Public Law, 1926, Version 1, 163, Section 37, Page 619. New Jersey Compendium Statutes, 1911 to 1924, Sections 81 to 8J, Page 1400. 
Cahill's New York Constitutional Laws. 1930, Section 61, North Dakota Compendium of Laws. 1913-1925, Police Code. 38, Section 2855, Subsection A1, Pages Ohio General Code. Section 12725, Prudhon's Pennsylvania Statutes, 1936, Title 31, Subsections 553 and 582, South Dakota Compendium of Laws, 1929, 192, Sections 7926-0, Page 2493, Williams, Tennessee Code, 1934, 15, Subsections 6549 and 6551, Williams, Texas Penal Code, Title 12, 2, Article 713A, Utah Revenue Statutes, 1933, Subsections 3-10-59, 3-10-60, Vermont Public Law, 1933, Title 34, 303, Section 7724, Page 1128, Three others have subjected its sale to rigid regulations. Colorado Law 1921, 30, Section 1007, page 440, Oregon 1930 Code, version 2.8, subsection 41 to 1208 to 41-1210, Remington's Washington Revenue Statutes, Version 7, Title 40, 13, Subsection 6206, 6207, 6713, 6714, Page 630, etc. Footnote 3 is an extraordinary display of raw citation power. Although the statutory citations in Paragraph 2 serve some function by telling the reader which states have controlled the sale of filled milk, the sheer volume of citations, unnecessary to support or clarify any argument in the opinion's text, represents a breathtaking dominance of form over function. Analysis of footnote 3 demonstrates why it, or any footnote, matters. Legal citations, especially in the form of footnotes, deserve scholarly attention for several reasons. But in order to engage with such study, one must distinguish between academic and judicial footnotes. In legal periodicals, footnotes differentiate one piece of work from the mass of other available literature. Footnoting has evolved from primitive origins and use as a pure reference into an artistic and abstruse discipline that functions as a subtle yet critical influence. 
in the determination of promotion, tenure, and professional status. See Austin, footnotes as product differentiation. Vanderbilt Law Review, Volume 40, pages 1131 and 1135. 1987, footnotes omitted. A footnote can also contain information useful in understanding the body of the work or it can suggest the absence of useful information in the text. In a judicial opinion, a footnote can provide doctrinal guidance for future courts, or, like in Caroline Products' famous footnote 4, it can cause confusion in the lower courts and spawn a new jurisprudence, or it can simply cause parties a lot of trouble. One court opined that a judicial footnote is as important a part of an opinion as a matter contained in the body of the opinion and has like binding force and effect. Courts have been less respectful of academic footnotes. Witness the First Circuit's audacious suggestion that Professor Lawrence Tribe's billing of $5,500 for 20 hours work preparing an 18-line footnote for a brief, was excessive. How life imitates the blue book. In the final analysis, footnotes are important mainly when they guide the reader to authority for a shared proposition. Citation is the highest form of legal discourse. It has a history as long and rich as that of the law itself. The first codification of rules for legal citation occurred as early as the late 15th century. It is no coincidence that Europe's Renaissance was as contemporaneous with the rise of legal citation manuals. The civilizing influence of citation systems reached its highest point with the development of a uniform system of citation, the Blue Book. The Blue Book was first published in 1926 during a period of unprecedented national prosperity. Again, it cannot be mere coincidence that the ultimate citation manual originated at such a salubrious point in history. The Blue Book did not gain wide acceptance immediately, of course. It was not widely adopted by academic journals until the 1930s, it did not provide citation forms for statutes until the 12th edition in 1976. Therefore, the court did not write Caroline products, including footnote 3, under the Blue Book's auspices. This is a pity, because footnote 3, unnecessarily long as it is, could have been even longer had the court used modern Blue Booking techniques. Stronger formalistic scrutiny would have allowed the footnote to obscure further the residual functionalism of the second paragraph. For, while misguided commentators may scoff, one must cite each unofficial state statutory compilation with the prescribed abbreviation 
and give the name of its publisher in parentheses. Adherence to this rule would enhance the length and massiveness of footnote 3. Similarly, inclusion of the date of each statutory compilation and relevant supplement would have lengthened the footnote without adulterating it with particularly useful information. For example, if modern blue booking techniques were used, the statement, Maryland Annals of Code, Article 27, Section 281 would read, Maryland Annals of Code, Article 27, Section 281, 1924. And if footnote 3 were written today, the same statute would be cited, Maryland Health General Code, Annals, Section 21-1210-1987. The addition of different typefaces within the same citation lends an element of welcome unreadability to mind footnotes. Although some argue that large and small capitals are unnecessary when citing statutes or books in law review footnotes, such arguments reflect the type of permissiveness that leads us down the road to barbarism. Ever since Gutenberg printed the Bible, hard-to-produce typefaces have represented advances in Western civilization. See, if we will not cite ourselves, who will cite us? As demonstrated, footnote 3 is a fine model for studying the triumph of form over mere function in footnotes, but it is also a good example of how to pad the amount of support for an assertion. Footnote 3 contains voluminous citations in support of two factual statements. This highlights the critical importance of providing support for as many assertions as possible, no matter how self evident many of them may seem. Respected federal judges have scoffed at the modern habit of documenting the most innocuous assertions, but they fail to recognize that the more propositions that need documentations, the more sources that can be cited. Decreasing the number of footnotes would rob many legal publications of their raison d'etre being cited. Part 3. Dairy Products and Distrust Footnote 3 and Meaning The statutes cited in footnote 3 all deal in some way with the question, what is filled milk? And by extension, what is milk? Footnote 3 symbolizes the key to understanding law. Interpreting terms, unless there is common understanding, there can be no communication, and without communication, there can be no informed debate or adversarial process. Defining the operative words is crucial to legal analysis. As one legal scholar put it, all words are different. That's why we have different words. Footnote 3 is a fitting starting point for a study of legal interpretation because United States versus Caroline Products 
was part of a most esteemed body of law, dairy jurisprudence, or those judicial decisions dealing with milk and its byproducts, or for Caroline products, the most intriguing American dairy case was the 1912 decision, United States versus 11,150 pounds of butter. There, the Eighth Circuit held that the presence of an abnormal amount of moisture in butter did not make it adulterated butter, according to a Minnesota health statute. Since then, dairy cases have contributed to the development of constitutional law, commercial law, slip-and-fall torts, securities regulation, and family law. Although dairy jurisprudence is vitally significant in its own right, one should treat it as a distinct subset of the wider field of cow law. Cattle have affected our legal tradition through a broader range of cases than those decided under dairy jurisprudence. Cow law has been on the cutting edge of legal development ever since Sherwood v. Waller. It has entered into legal judicial analysis of such doctrines as the insanity defense and cautionary jury instructions. Having placed jury dairy jurisprudence in its proper context under the rubric of bovine jurisprudence, this aside can now proceed with its inquiry into legal interpretation. The difficulty in determining what falls under filled milk statutes reflects the main problem in any attempt to define legal concepts. All interpretation is subjective. How can one say objectively what is or is not milk when such an intellect as Judge Friendly had such trouble determining what is chicken? Determining the plain meanings of words has always been difficult. In the end, legislature's attempts, as illustrated by footnote 3, to pin down a definition of milk leaves a mystery that presently limited modes of legal thought cannot solve. Part 4. Citation Manual of the Gods The reason we are unable to unlock the mysteries of footnote 3 is that we are bound by received wisdom as to its origins. This is true partly because the origin of footnote 4 is so well documented. Justice Stone's biographer, Alpheus Thomas Mason, revealed that Louis Lusky, Justice Stone's clerk at the time and later a Columbia Law School professor, wrote in the first draft of the United States versus Caroline Products, what became the second and third paragraphs of footnote 4. Lusky admitted to Mason that he wrote the first draft of footnote 4, exclusive of the first paragraph, and that Justice Stone adopted it almost as drafted. In a published article, Lusky did not state outright who wrote the last two paragraphs of footnote 4, but explained how the first paragraph was added to the footnote after a suggestion from Chief Justice Hughes. So we know that footnote 4 was a team effort among Chief Justice Hughes, or his clerk, Lusky, and Justice Stone. 
The sources that discuss the origins of footnote 4, however, are suspiciously silent about the genesis of footnote 3. What accounts for this conspiracy of silence? Who wrote footnote 3? Was it Justice Stone, Chief Justice Hughes, Louis Lusky, a combination of the three, or super-intelligent astronauts from another world? Footnote 3 is an orgy of legal citation. Accordingly, for evidence about its origins, we should look to the original authors of the Blue Book. Only one so impressed with citation and ponderous documentation could have produced such a footnote. Legal literature is fortunately rife with cases as to the Blue Book's true origin. Judge Richard Posner has written that the pyramids in Egypt are the hypertrophy of burial. The hypertrophy of law is the Blue Book. Just Judge Posner may, for once, be onto something. These same entities responsible for the pyramids are probably responsible for the advent of the Blue Book. The Egyptian pyramids were, according to strong evidence, actually built by extraterrestrials as navigational aids. Experts in the subject agree that many phenomena mysterious to the ancients were caused by the arrival on Earth of an advanced race with technology beyond human understanding. The Blue Book almost certainly came from such a source. Like the technology of the ancient astronauts, the Blue Book is puzzling to all but the anointed few, who are probably not entirely human, to whom mysteries are revealed. Who but a truly advanced race would have taken for granted that the title of the Journal of College and University Law would be abbreviated J.C and U.L. Only a population with intelligence far greater than our own would have produced a citation manual that requires its own instructional guide. Evidence of the extraterrestrials' presence permeates the annals of legal history. For example, what was Justice Holmes' brooding omnipresence in the sky? Could it have been the Blue Book authors watching over us? And what was Justice Stewart talking about when he mentioned the orbit of the common law? Although some justices might try to cover up their knowledge of the cosmos by pretending, for example, that the substance of the Milky Way is unknown, the truth is visible to those who have the courage to look at look for it. The fact that the Blue Book is the universally accepted standard for citations reveals its extraterrestrial origin. The Blue Book has yet to conquer the entire world of law, and its rules leave, still leave uncertain the citation of particular sources. Only recognition of the special origins of the Blue Book and the footnote 3 will cause such a conquest to remedy such ambiguities. Only then can we live up to the imprecation of the ancient philosophers. Verba tene, res secateur.